and he pulled me aside and he just said, hey, you could be, I think you'd be the biggest band in the world. You've got to stop talking about Jesus. Stop going on premier radio. Don't do those Christian radio interviews. That moment where the preacher on the Sunday morning prays every Sunday, you know, dear God, get me out of the way of what you want to do today. And I really feel like that. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. You're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio, where we sit down with a different Christian each and every week to find out something of their life, faith and testimony. And I'm really pleased to say my guest on the show this week is John Cooper. John is the founder and lead vocalist of the two-time Grammy-nominated Christian rock band Skillet. The band has sold over 12 million albums worldwide since starting out in 1996. They regularly tour the world, selling out arenas, and they're over in the UK right now to play shows in Manchester and London. Skillet's latest album is Dominion, which I can tell you personally is a fantastic album, uh, always on my playlists. And John is also the author of Awake and Alive to Truth. He's become somewhat of an outspoken critic of what is sometimes called the deconstruction movement. This idea of liberal or progressive ideas entering Christian culture is something that John has been keen to speak out against. And maybe we'll have the chance to dig into that a little bit. But John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here with you, man. So you're in Manchester tonight, and as I said, you are a Christian, you're a Christian band, but I'm guessing there'll be a huge number of people there tonight, perhaps even the majority, who don't share your faith. So what's it like being a Christian in a Christian band, but with a mainstream audience? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I would assume when we play Europe, uh, probably nearly you know, most of the audience is is not Christian, I would assume. Um, and I love it. I mean, I love music is such a fantastic way to um, share something that you believe in. I mean, that's that's the kind of the whole point, is that you get a chance to write a song about uh, about the things you believe, the things you feel, the, the way you see the world. And it's a wonderful chance to write something that um, may help somebody through a bad day, and or or at its best, who knows? You may even change someone's mind. Uh, they might be open to praying for the first time in their whole life. Maybe they're open to going, all right, maybe there is a God. You, you know, you never really know what music can do for people. So I love playing Christian music. I love playing music for people who don't believe what I believe. And um, I would say, and even in America now, I do think our audience is probably 60, 40, um, I would say, probably leans towards a non-Christian audience in America as well. It must be a really interesting dynamic for you because on the, on the one hand, you are a Christian, you believe what you believe, you want to share your faith. On the other hand, you know, people are there to be entertained. It's a rock concert. It's not, they're not come to hear you preach, but there must be a sense in which where you want to say something of the hope that you have and your Christian faith, but you, you don't want to be shove it down people's throats of being a preacher. How do you handle that kind of dynamic on stage? And, and looking back in your career, have there been times where you feel like you've done that well and other times where you found that more difficult? Well, that's a great question. I, I mean, the truth is, with music, with contemporary music today, whether you're talking about rock, pop, what you know, whatever radio music, the truth is, is that singing about hope is actually. It, it, let's see, it's difficult in the sense that it's not very popular. So you're all, you're already going against the grain. I mean, I look at rock music. You know, rock music is not known for being uber positive and happy and bunnies and unicorns you know rock music is is about other things let's say and in in darkness and angst nihilism things like that and so i would say that already i think you're kind of going against the grain even if you're not singing an explicitly religious song by singing about having any kind of hope already sort of puts you against against you know the fray if you will and i like that and i i i i like it because it, it makes us different and it's also authentic. That's real. It's who we are. I used to have a lot of angst, and I used to <laughs> I used to have a whole lot of reasons to be angry in the world. And my hope in, in Christ, you know, He set me free from so many things, and He's given me such a joy and such a peace in my life that I, I love to sing about it. So I actually like it, but but it doesn't. It, it's not without difficulty. Because sometimes people go, man, you just don't belong. No, we're not going to play you on the radio. It's too Christian. It's too happy. It's too happy. It's too this. It's too that. Um, and so I think what Skill has done 
what the Lord has done, I should say, through Skillet, he's kind of carved out a little niche for Skillet to have our own fans, our own world. And I would say it's largely non-Christians who come and they like that it's religious, even if they're not religious, because it gives them something that they don't hear elsewhere. There was a really significant, I guess, kind of potential turning point for you. I think back in 2012, you tell the story of basically being told, hey, John, can you just talk about Jesus a little bit less? Because we think you could be a massive, massive, massive rock band, one of the biggest in the world, but you just need to tone down the Jesus stuff. And that was that was quite a real suggestion to you at one point. And obviously you chose not to do that. No regrets, I'm guessing? <laughs> no regrets, baby. Yeah, no, there's a true story. Yeah, I mean, it was 2009 is when we first... Uh, let me rewind. We came out in 1996. So if there's any young people who listen to this, I know it sounds like we're ancient. We are. We are ancient. <laughs> and uh, I can't believe I've been doing this for so long. Uh, it's our 27th year playing Skillet. But it took us a very long time to get popular. 2009 was our first radio hit, uh, mainstream radio hit. And so when that started getting big, all of a sudden we were selling a lot of records. I couldn't believe it. I, I was like, Lord, are people actually buying my record? What, what, what's happening? And we were touring the country and, and it was somebody, it was a kind of a, a kingmaker, you might call it, you know, a mover and shaker in the industry. And he pulled me aside and he just said, hey, you could be, I think you'd be the biggest band in the world. Uh, by the way, we could never be the biggest band in the world, but this was his opinion. Okay. You could be the biggest band in the world, but you've got to stop talking about Jesus. Pl- stop going on premier radio. Don't do those Christian radio interviews. Don't do the Christian events. Don't talk about Jesus. And he just said, he he actually said this. He said, everybody likes Bono. Just, just talk about helping the world. Everybody likes Bono. It's fine. And, uh, and I don't, I don't say that to put Bono down by any means. He's done a lot of great things in the world. Um, but he was kind of saying, you need to go that route. And I thought, man, man, maybe he's right, you know, and, and maybe, uh, I could I could reach more people. Here's what he said to me. He said, John, if you got rich, uh, not rich, he said, if you got famous and influential, imagine how many people you could talk to about Jesus then, you know, down the line. Shut up about Jesus now, and then later you better do it. But I prayed about it, and I just knew there's absolutely no way that the Lord wants me to stop sharing the name of Jesus, the one who set me free. There is no way that he wants me to do that. And so we kind of took the road less traveled, if you will. And um, just like the poem said, it's made all the difference because in the end, uh, you know, the Bible says if if we acknowledge Christ before the world, that, that, that Jesus will acknowledge us before the Father. Whoa, what a great promise. The Bible is wonderful. So that that's what I'm standing on. Tell me a bit more about your own personal story and testimony, because I understand you did grow up in a in a Christian family. But it was it was heavily religious, not necessarily in a good way, wasn't it? You know, I, I had a wonderful family. I would say it. I would say it was religious in a good way, even though it had some some difficulties. You know, every family's got difficulties. My mom was a wonderful person. She loved God. She was a believer. Um, she was sort of the spiritual leader of the family, if you will. She read the Bible to me and my my, my brothers read the Bible. She made us memorize scripture. We had, to, we had to pray before we went to school. I mean, it was a very big thing. And that part of, of, of my life was wonderful. Certainly, though, I, we were more on the, the kind of fundamentalist side, maybe, uh, maybe some might call it legalistic. And, um, uh, and so I don't would say disparagingly, but I, I, I didn't love that. You know, I didn't understand it. Was it just that I didn't love it? I didn't understand it. You know, I was kind of like, I don't understand why wearing a certain color shirt, wearing black. If anybody can see me now, I've got black on. If you ever see me, I've got black on because black is the coolest looking color. You know, right? And I don't understand why why wearing black is of the devil. I, I just couldn't. Cro- I didn't make any sense of it. Or why liking a certain kind of music, um, for instance, rock music. Uh, I understand that the lyrics did not glorify God, but there was Christian rock music 
and their lyrics glorified God. So why is Christian rock music considered satanic at my house? So yeah, we struggled with some of those. We wrestled with some of those things. And I remember thinking, Lord, if 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 Christian rock music is satanic, then I don't want anything to do with it. But I just need to see this in the Bible. I need to understand how this could be. And so, you know, a uh, long story short, came through that. But I did give my life to Christ when I was a kid. And, and I really... You know, I, I, I give my mom credit for that. And I always like to say that because I know there's probably parents listening. I'm a parent. I have two kids. My, my kids are 20 and nearly 18. My son will be 18 next month. And both of my kids know Christ. They're born again and, and filled with the spirit and wonderful. And they love God. And I always tell parents, I mean, you never know what your words are going to do for your children. So raise them up. You know, the Bible says fathers to raise your, your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's our job. Well, that fell on my mom to do, and she did that. And so I gave her life to Christ as a kid. And um, everybody has ups and downs in life. But when I got into college, I became a very, very serious follower of Jesus. I began to study the Bibles very seriously. And uh, that's my story. You said that life has ups and downs. Have there been moments in your in your Christian journey where you've had major doubts? I would say, I would say, uh, and this is not bragging in any way. I hope nobody takes that away. This is just absolutely boasting on the grace of God. I've never had a time in my life where I would say was heavy doubt. I would say there was one period of my life that lasted three days where I was very shaken. I wouldn't say it was extremely shaken, but it hit me. <laughs> it hit me, man, because I had gone to, to university. And one of the things that that I would say that I wish my my church had done better, or even my family, um, again, not disparaging them, just my opinion, was that they wanted to shelter me from wrong ideas. They wanted to shelter me from from wrong ideologies. And in doing so, they sheltered me to such a degree that I had no answers. I had no answers for Darwin's evolution. I had no answers for why the Bible is actually, why can I trust this book that I'm reading is even real? Maybe it wasn't even written by the people they say it was written by. They didn't prepare me for any of those things. Um, They did not prepare me for the sexual revolution, you know, just the promiscuous nature of college. And so because of that, I was pretty shocked the first three or four days. My professor, day one, hitting me, Nobody would take the Bible seriously as a as an actual intellectual person. You can't be intellectual and be a Christian. Um, if you have faith in the Bible, you're sort of a in, in America we call it a redneck. I don't know. I don't know what that word is in the UK, but you're backwards. You're you're kind of silly. You believe in fairy tales, and uh, and I was not prepared for that. And for about three days, I was praying. I was like, Have I been lied to my whole life? It wasn't a deep. It was not a deep sort of doubt. It was more of a, I'm a little bit shocked at the things that I'm hearing. And my answers didn't come from a podcast because there were no podcasts at the time. My answers didn't come from anything brilliant that I read. It was just the truth of the word of God. That's where my answers came from. I was praying for three days. I opened up my Bible and I came upon the scripture that, that where the Bible says that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And in that moment that I read it, I just knew it. Like the truth of the word of God hit me like a ton of bricks. This isn't about looking smart. This isn't about being intellectual. This is about the truth of the word of God. And and that was, uh, that was it didn't last long. I mean, it hit me like a lightning bolt. <laughs> it, it is interesting, though, how some of the things we do as Christians can end up being counterproductive. Because as you say, there's there's a good heart in that of let's let shelter John, let's Know, protect him from these bad ideas, which which sounds like a good idea. But as you say, in reality, if you do that too long with people, then when the questions do come, you're, you've not been prepared in how to answer them because you've been too sheltered. Yeah, I, I think that there's a real fine line to walk there. And I, and I really do think the church, in my opinion, at large, I think we could do a better job because I think that what happens is that it starts to feel like maybe the Bible doesn't have answers for these. And it, it, in other words, of course, it's faith alone. It's faith. It's faith in God, but that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as reason. You know, it doesn't mean that that the Bible is unreasonable. The Bible is actually not unreasonable, and and the world that God created is not unreasonable. 
And so I think it can kind of sometimes seem like the Bible doesn't have any answers for that. Just don't ask. Just have faith in God. But it's not actually true. The Bible has answers for these things. And uh, and I think that we sort of lost the role of the Christian philosopher. You know, we had C.S. Lewis and we had Chesterton and and we had Francis Schaeffer. And then after that, it kind of kind of fell off. <laughs> and I'm not saying we don't have any. I'm just saying it's not as popular as it was then. I think it's a really a necessary role. Yes, it's important to show that we we have good answers and we can reason, and there are philosophical and good theological arguments for for gods. And it's it's not just the atheists who have all the arguments. Christians got some good ones as well, I suppose. <laughs> we have some great ones, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you said in a, in an interview a few months back, um, you, you kind of estimated that that maybe only 30% of what you call the Christian music industry, maybe only 30% of the Christian music industry holds to a traditional biblical sexual ethic. And this brings us on to some things you've been writing about, both online and in your book as well, this kind of concern for theology and truth within the church. Do you still think that? Do you still think that the, the Christian music industry, for the most part, has abandoned what you would call a, a, a biblical and traditional sexual ethic? Oh, yes, I absolutely think that's accurate. Um, I even think the church in America, um, I, I, I probably shouldn't give any percentages because it's not as if I've, <laughs> it's not as if I've actually... You haven't done a survey. <laughs> no, I've not done a survey, no, but it is getting um, quite concerning, I would say. And, uh, and I think that that's, it's a, that's a good example. I think it's one of the things that we maybe don't talk about for, for lots of different reasons. I'm not really sure what they are, but there's lots of them. And, and I think it's probably not good. And so um, I think the Christian music industry is in a very, very scary place. I think there's a divide that's coming and I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but it's in a, it's in a pretty, um, I would say progressive Christianity is reigning very, I don't think they're supreme in America, the Christian industry, but they are gaining a lot of ground right now. And I think that that some of the, the, the artists that are more theologically conservative just don't speak about it out of fear or out of, I don't want to cause a fuss. That's just not our style. People, you know, it's not like you set out playing Christian music because you're hoping to anger a whole bunch of other Christians. <laughs> so I think that all of that plays into it and just going, hey, this isn't a battle that I want. I just want to play music. And I think that, that what, was, what was the what was the reasoning for you to step into that? Because you say you don't have to. You could just carry on making skillet music. You didn't have to write the book. You didn't have to set up a podcast. You didn't have to start commenting on politics or theology or kind of quite divisive issues. So why why go there? Why bother with it? That's a fantastic question. It happened to me because in 2013 in America we began. There was a lot of uh, of culture shifting that began to happen in the early 2010s. In America, um, I would call it something like secular social justice. That might be a term for it. We began to have a lot of um, racial reconciliation type conversations. We began to have a real rise of of what I would call neo-Marxism in America. All these things began happening. And I was, still wasn't going to say anything because I'm like, hey, I'm an artist. I just want to play my music, tell people about Jesus. It was actually other Christian artists who were on the other side of what I believe, they began speaking out really boldly and saying things that, frankly, I had never heard before. I, I was, at that time, I'd never heard of what I would call progressive Christianity. I'd never heard of deconstruction. Um, and so I began going, what in the world is going on with some of these fellow Christian artists? I don't even know what they're talking about. I've never heard a Christian believe this before. And so I began studying, I began reading their point of views, the books they were saying that we should read. I began reading it. And once I understood what was going on, I got really concerned. Frankly, I started speaking, not because I was angry, but because I was concerned. I was like, this is, this is leading a lot of people away from faith in Christ. And they, I believe that, that they are getting um, impacted by the culture, not from, from the Bible as much. And so I wanted to help hopefully shelter people from that. And that's kind of why I started speaking. When I really got loud, the first time I ever got super loud was actually in America. We had a Christian leader called Joshua Harris, who not only deconstructed, he said he deconstructed and then became apostate and and left the church. 
And then right after that, there was a Christian worship writer, Marty Sampson from Hillsong. Within three weeks later, came out, not just saying that he was losing his faith, but he began attacking Christianity. Uh, And he said, hey, science has disproven that there's a God. And I just said, you know what? I didn't say this, but this is the truth. My kids grew up watching Marty Sampson and people on worship DVDs. You know, my daughter got saved, gave her life to Jesus together at home with me and, and my wife as we were worshiping to one of these DVDs. And then I, and my daughter believed the gospel for the first time and we prayed together. And now you're not just leaving the faith, but you're going to attack Christian. You're going to attack Christ. It, that I just thought this can't go. If you're making a public declaration against God, then I think there needs to be a public rebuttal and say, hey, you know what? I'm tired of seeing the holy name of Christ being trampled like this. And that's when I decided to get loud because it was happening in my own peer group. And I, I remember that time well. Joshua Harris is a previous guest on this show before he fully deconstructed you remember there was a period where he he apologized for that book he wrote on dating and was still a christian at that point and i, I spoke to him but you're, you're quite right after that he then left the faith completely i remember marty sampson the same thing and i remember i remember your response and if i could categorize it this way i think there were two responses from christians there was what i would call a pastoral response which was a kind of really sorry to hear this um there there marty and oh dear and can we meet for coffee and hope you're okay kind of response. And then there was your response, which you could perhaps categorize as prophetic, which was more a kind of, I'm going to write a piece explaining why you're wrong on this, 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 and this, and this is what the truth is. Is that a fair description? You have a more prophetic edge or more prophetic response than a pastoral response in that kind of a scenario? I think that's a perfect, I think that's the best that, it's, that anybody's you know said it. And, and actually, that's typically, I would say it too. It is a little bit more like, the social critic of the Old Testament, you know, that we call prophets that comes in and says, hey, all right, wait a minute. You know, this is this is what the law of God says. This is not living up to it. It's, it's sort of a prophetic almost rebuke, but but also just pointing out the it, it's the danger of what this can do for other people. And I think that's what I didn't like. I didn't like people saying, for instance, science has disproven God anyway. And it's actually the church that's really mean. So I'm we don't need God. Here's all that we need. Treat people with love. And so I just want to say, hey, by the way, why are you going to treat people with love if there is no God? If science disproves God, science doesn't give us any sort of reason to believe we need to be loving towards other people. I mean, that's straight up Chesterton and C.S. Lewis, right? We, we've known that for a long time. And I don't want anybody else getting duped by your words. So some of it was protection for the sheep. But also, I do think maybe a prophetic edge, that that could possibly, I think that's fair. How would you describe your calling? You know, in your day-to-day life, what you're doing with Skillet, is there a kind of mission statement or calling that you you feel kind of God's put me on earth for this reason? Well, I don't know. It, you know, I do think we've been in a, in a period of, of sort of God has been sort of shifting the way our influence reaches the world. What I'd always believed was is that we were supposed to be a light in a dark place. I believe my calling was to to be a, a voice, um, maybe sort of like a John the Baptist type character, if you will, that is to, to maybe not go the conventional route, but to, to preach the word of God and, and be a light and where people would come to hear that in a, in a certain way, it's sort of analogous to playing Christian music in the mainstream audience. You know, it's an unconventional way to share, to kind of prepare the way for the Lord, if you will. That has been my calling, and I've seen that sort of as evangelistic, sort of as prophetic, maybe. And um, and I think it's the same calling. I just think that maybe in a certain way that God is kind of moving the, uh, to use another analogy, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors, but to, to sort of move the tent pegs 
you know, move the tent pegs out further and further where the tent is being stretched. And, and my role um, has, has kind of come into a little bit of defending the faith as well, which is, is you know, not unlike what, you know, John the Baptist or Stephen the Martyr or somebody would do, but it's kind of, it's, that's, that's a role that I wasn't expecting, um, but it's kind of come to that. And so I don't know if that's too much information, but that's my role. Has there been a kind of cost in that? I mean, you, you mentioned before some of the things you said has not always been popular, even amongst Christians. And I imagine that must hurt. I imagine it's, it's almost worse when fellow Christians attack you rather than non-believers to a certain extent. So is there a kind of cost in doing the more defending the faith, apologetics type role? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, as soon as as soon as you start kind of taking sides on something, people get really, really upset. You know, it's just the way it is. I've had lots and lots of people that I love, uh, friends d- that I deeply love, just say, "John, what you're doing is wrong. What you're saying is wrong. Um, you're bringing division. It's hateful. We're not supposed to do that." They take they would take more of, as you said. The there there approach, um, the pastoral approach, if you want, and which I think was a great way that you said it, you know, the accurate way to say it. Um, but of course, any pastor knows. In fact, I think it was John Calvin, if I remember, that says it right. You know, you're a pastor's preaching in, 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 in one hand and he's he's chasing off wolves in the other. I, I mean, that the, the pastoral pastoral role is not simply just one of being nice to sheep it's also defending against the wolves so i think that some of that i think they're wrong about it and so i've had to just go that's just the way it goes and then on the business side absolutely people have gotten very upset on the christian and on the mainstream side at some of the positions i've taken you know i'm very outspoken against abortion that's not very popular um and uh but I just think that that's the time we're in. I think I think if we don't begin to be honest about life, about truth, about things that that lead to that I would call pro-civilizational versus anti-civilizational, if we don't begin to do that, we're going to get to a really a really scary place. I think we're already in the midst of kind of the destruction of the West. You know, Western civilization is being torn asunder as we speak. And I think that the the time for just quietness and uh, just being silent about everything as the Titanic is, you know, about to hit the iceberg, it's not the time to be silent. I think we got to begin to promote things that lead to life. talking about not being silent segues us very nicely onto tonight where you will be making a very very loud noise in manchester uh singing singing these songs and uh turning the volume up to 11 as they say tell me a little bit about what songs either you're performing tonight or maybe even writing that are really driving you what are you most looking forward to performing tonight and what's the kind of message that people in manchester can expect oh yeah we're so excited in fact the, in fact the whole tour kicks off here in manchester so we're starting it right here in the old country. We're doing it right. Um, you know, that's what's funny is with Skillet, it, there's there's this large picture that we've been talking about, you know, and it's like the the things in your heart. But on a day-to-day basis, what Skillet is about is about putting on, I hope, great concerts, exciting concerts, in which we're going to have people here that would, I mean, they might they would hear this interview and say, wow, I disagree with John on literally everything in the entire world disagree on everything because most of our fans especially overseas are not religious people and i love that i love that they come to the show because skillet is an extremely inclusive band that's the and that's the funny thing about it we always have mainstream um, outlets radio stations or bands because most of the bands that we tour with are also not christian 
they always tell me, Skillet is the most inclusive band we've ever toured with. And I say, good, because that that's a part of Christianity. It doesn't mean that I don't have, that we don't have beliefs that we say Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And we believe that, but that because we believe that, it has made us inclusive towards loving other people, whether they disagree with us or hate us or not. And so a Skillet concert is extremely inclusive. It is energetic. What I feel when I'm on stage, to tell you the truth, is just uh, uh, energy. I mean, just excitement, because so many of our songs are really just geared towards helping people have a good day, helping people get out of bed in the morning when they, gosh, this has been a hard few years. What way are they going to turn on the news? They're not going to hear anything good because there's nothing good happening. It's all bad. And they need a reason to make it through the day. And maybe Skillet's song is that gives them that extra push. So I would say when I'm on stage, it's a very different kind of feeling um, than when I'm doing interviews with you talking about worldview and the Bible and authority of scripture. Um, but at its root, what I really do hope is that somebody will say, why does Skillet's music make me feel so good? And they might just look deeper and they might find out that there's a spirit behind that music that of course is the Holy spirit. It is that it is saving grace. It is a God that wants to change your life. And maybe the reason you feel so good listening to our music is why is that so different? Maybe that's because, you know, the Bible says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy spirit. And wouldn't you like to have righteousness, peace, and joy. And so let me tell you about Jesus Christ. So, that's kind of all what happens in my head when I'm on stage. <laughs> That's a wonderful description and a lovely place to leave it. John Cooper, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, it's great to talk with you. Thank you so much. I'm Sam Hales, and you have been listening to my conversation with John Cooper from Skillet. Really hope you enjoyed that. As I mentioned in the interview, they played the UK recently, Manchester and London. And you have heard some of their music along the way during today's interview, as I have played you selections from Legendary, Destiny, Refuge, and finally, The Resistance. Skillet's music is available in all the usual places, all the usual streaming platforms. Do check them out. That is not the end of the show. My colleague Emma Fowl has another great guest for you coming up on today's edition of The Profile, so do not go anywhere. Prepare to immerse yourself in the poignant and powerful history of the Windrush generation. This June, Premier Christianity magazine uncovers the stories and experiences of the Windrush generation through a Christian perspective. Don't miss this opportunity to delve into this significant part of black British history. Subscribe to Premier Christianity in June to get 50% off all subscriptions. Visit premierchristianity.com. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. And it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. Today, in the second part of our show, I'm speaking to Adua Ando, best known for her role as the feisty and formidable Lady Danbury in the hit Netflix series Bridgerton, Adua is an accomplished actor with a long list of screen and stage credits. She has performed with the Royal Shakespeare Company, is a Booker Prize judge and a keen social activist, amongst many, many other things. She joins us on today's show to talk about what it was like being the only family of colour in a Cotswolds village, how she found her way back to faith and why she believes in making space, wherever we are, for people to encounter God. Let's listen in now. So maybe I was wondering if we could just talk a little bit about your upbringing to start off with. I, I know that you were born in the Cotswolds in the 60s, that you're a mixed race family. Your dad's Ghanaian and your your mum is English. What was that like? Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in a rural area in the 60s and 70s in a mixed race family? What role faith played in your family? Um, yeah, what life was like for you generally? Well, I was born in Bristol and then we moved to Leeds and we lived there till I was four. 
and then we moved to the Cotswolds. So we were the only family of colour in the village. The village is tiny. There were 60 kids in my whole primary school. It's a, a village of about a thousand people altogether. I mean, it was a it, it was a self-contained, thriving little community of dairy farmers and sheep farmers. It's in the heart of the Cotswolds. So, you know, everything that you can imagine, hawthorn blossom, blackberry bushes, cowpats, the smell of silage, a village hall, a very thriving rural community. I saw my first ever film in the village hall on, I think it was put on um, somebody's dad's, you know, the uh, screens that you'd have to show your slides on. Yeah. Um, I think it was, it was screened on that. It was Annie, get your gun. We all sat cross-legged on the floor and it was marvellous. We had Christmas parties. We had a sports day with swing boats and ice cream. And it was a very sort of beautiful, not wealthy, lovely childhood. You would go out in the morning and you would literally come back for your tea. Um, Sounds very quintessentially English. <laughs> um, and the lady who lived across the wall, Miss Hall, she would, uh, I would stand on an orange box and clamber over the wall. And she had a piano and she'd let me play the piano. We didn't have one at the time. And she would give me mint imperials and caraway seed cake. And she would take me for walks up to the common where we'd visit her friend, Miss Chapel. Um, they were both in there. Gosh, they were probably only in their 70s, but they seemed, you know, as old as Methuselah to me. And they would tell me about their childhood in the 1800s when they'd get a penny a week pocket money and they would split it into four farthings and the sweets they could buy for that. So it was a really, you know, I felt like I was on the cusp of an old world and a new. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, it was wonderful. We'd make our own ginger beer. You could churn your own milk to make butter and it was I'm I'm so glad I had that childhood. Um and there and then there were also aspects of it that were hard for me. I went to primary school. I was a very swatty, smart kid. I was very excited to go. And um I thought that being in the infants meant that somebody smashed your head against the Cotswold stone wall every day. Um so it was quite shocking, quite brutal. But you know, when you're a child, you sort of weave it all in and make a logic of it. So I learned to fight people. Um, we would play war games. <clears throat> it's called the war games. And it would happen a couple of times a year. And it would be girls against boys from the whole school. And I would always come home hoarse from having been yelling at every playtime and marshalling the troops and uh, fighting the boys. You know, it was it was many things. All Nearly all our teachers were Welsh because we were quite close to the Welsh border. I had a wonderful primary school headmaster. He, I got put up a year because I was... A, bright kid and I was curious and I wanted to know about the world so it was a real mix of things my dad still lives in the village in the same house so I can go and be in my childhood bedroom and be up in the attic and look out over the Cotswold hills and the hills are still the same even if there's more building work now yeah I mean neither of my parents were from that area obviously my dad was from Ghana my mum had grown up in Liverpool and moved to Bristol when she was 16 so um the Cotswolds was a properly new adventure for the whole family and was there a specific reason that they they he chose the Cotswolds well they chose the Cotswolds because my mum got a teaching job my mum's a teacher um, and my dad got a job at British Aerospace uh, in the accountancy department. So I, I grew up thinking my dad had built Concorde because obviously he worked British Aerospace. Um, no, he was just an accountant. Um, <laughs> uh, they moved there because when we moved down from Leeds, my father had arrived in Bristol in the late 50s. That's where he'd met my mother. And at that time in Bristol, children of colour uh, particularly children of an African heritage, were there was a, a, a huge predominance of children of African heritage in what they called educationally subnormal schools. Uh, Bristol was pretty racist. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the bus boycott that was happening over the winter of the year that I was born, 62-63, took place in Bristol because the trade unions of the time um, operating the buses and the owners of the bus companies refused to have any people of colour working on them. And the thought was, would you want your daughter on the bus with one of them darkies late at night? So 
there was a bus boycott and working class people of all races stood in solidarity with each other, walked in solidarity with each other and did not take the buses for a year. And I, the sacrifice is that, you know, people didn't, couldn't afford cars. So to commit to not taking the bus for as long as it took, because it was an open-ended boycott, was a tremendously generous mm. act of solidarity of the people of Bristol. Um, and at the end of it, Asian and African Caribbean uh, bus conductors and bus drivers were indeed allowed to operate on the buses of Bristol. And that um, action was the foundation that turned into the first race relations legislation that this country had. Wow. Uh, uh, so, you know, it was a radical town and a racist town at the same mm. time. Yeah, it's uh, a really interesting mix, isn't it? Well, it had a really strong racist here, uh, history, mm. as we know, um, a big slaving town. And so my father, he's a well-educated African man. He went to the same boarding school as Kofi Annan. He calls, he still calls Kofi Annan, ah, Annan, junior boy. So he could see no earthly reason why his children or any children of African heritage should automatically be assumed to be children who couldn't be educated. So he he took us out to the Cotswolds purposely to take us somewhere where there was one school and all the children went there and his kids would get an education. I mean, I think for him, I mean, he understood about racism in this country. He'd experienced it, but he came from his formative years were in a country where everyone looked like him, from the street sweeper to the, you know, the president. So for him, the possibilities for you as a as a human being were maybe more around um, your wealth or your poverty or your location in the country, but they certainly weren't about your race. So it baffled him, I think, and he was not having any truck with it. So um, they moved out to the Cotswolds. It was handy for both their jobs, and it was somewhere where both my parents could be assured that um, their children would get a decent education, which we did. And tell me about the role that faith played in your growing up years, if at all. Well, um, my mother met my father because um, in Bristol, her family lived next door to a Nigerian vicar called Sam Talaby. And my mum would help out with the club that he would run for, for kids after school. And as a thank you, he took her to a dance that was being and hosted by the Bristol African Students Association. And my father was the president of the Bristol African uh, Students Association. And so that's where she met my dad. So Faith was big in my grandmother's family. Nana was a churchgoer all her life. And uh, my grandfather in Ghana Papa, he was a Gideon's Bibler. Um, so Faith was huge uh, in, in their family and he also preached. And uh, Faith is still huge in my Ghanaian family. So whenever we're in Ghana, my dad's a Quaker. Uh, my stepmother's a Quaker. They're, they're super active. They're the best kind of Quakers. They are the Quakers that demo and pray in silence. They're very active and they're very, you know, fervent and silent in their in their faith and it's a really beautiful thing um so uh faith has always been there or thereabouts when i when we lived in wickwar i was i went to chapel so in our village there was church and chapel the chapel wasn't actually the chapel it was it's a congregational church but i didn't even i don't think i twigged that till i was in my maybe my 30s i just it was chapel and uh, people that went to church, church was the big church on the hill, surrounded by the enormous um, graveyard and with all the, the lovely Victoriana. And chapel was a very plain building with no decoration. There was uh, one Bible quote and sometimes there'd be fresh flowers. But if you were left, this is how we broke it down. If you were left wing or working class, you went to chapel. If you were landed class or you worked on the land of the local um, landowners, which many people did, you went to church. So um, I went to chapel until I developed a fascination with bell ringing when I was about eight. And I decided I was going to go to church because I wanted a bell ring. And also, if you joined the choir at church, you got 18 pence a month, which was wow. a fortune. 
Um, so I went to church uh, for a while. And again, the ubiquitous orange box uh, was brought out so I could stand on it to reach the bell ropes. And I absolutely loved bell ringing. I loved much less the services at church. They were dreary. It was cold. It was dark. I was bored. So um, I lasted not very long, six months maybe. And then I decided I was going back to chapel uh, where the Reverend Billy Baker would tell us stories and there were Christian union groups. And when Dick Saunders came to town, everybody went to the Dick Saunders crusades. So I, I, um, uh, I had to, my mum said, well, you have to go and tell the vicar that you're going, you're going to leave and you're going to go back to chapel. And I got there and the vicar's wife put newspaper down on the, uh, just inside the front hall for me to stand on. And that was as far as I was allowed into the vicarage. Um, and then the vicar came out and, um, I told him I was leaving, uh, but I was too scared to tell him I was going back to chapel. It felt worse to say I was crossing the other side of the street than to just say I was going to be a heathen unbeliever. So I left it at, at um, I was leaving and he made me cry. Wow. They were not, a, they were not the greatest um, uh, advert for the Church of England, I have to they say. They didn't want to share. <laughs> not great, not great. Um, so I went back to chapel and I stayed at chapel and, until my teens. Um, well into my teens and um, then my parents divorced and we left the village and we moved a whole four miles up the road to Wooden Under Edge and um, I was still going to I was going to a, a Christian Union class on a Friday evening that I'd been attending since the infants because my infants class teacher Mrs Porter ran the Christian Union group so I was I went to that you know from four to 16. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then I did what many children from church families do. I mean, I, I was the kid that went three times on a Sunday and I did the flower arranging. I went to a Bible class in the week and then I hit my late teens. I was a punk rocker. Um, the two weren't mutually exclusive, but at a certain point I just drifted off, which, you know, when I talk to, you know, friends, Christian friends, it seems to be quite a, a routine path. Absolutely. Um, I did exactly the same when I went to university. Come back. Yeah. 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 So what was it that eventually drew you back then? So, I mean, yeah, like you say, um, it's very common experience, isn't it? That yeah. you, you get to your late teens, the world looks very exciting. God yeah. fades into the background for a while. Yeah. yeah. And then we come to our senses. What happened for you that drew you back? I would always go to church on high days and holidays, wherever I was. Um, you know, when I was a student, wherever I lived, I would I would always go because it's um, it's a place of peace. And I think a late teenage, early 20 person needs peace. And so it would always be my go to space that never changed. Um, but as a regular churchgoer, that didn't really happen until my eldest daughter started primary school and it was a church primary school. So um as is also the way, I had to start going to church on the regular to get her in. Yep. Um, uh, so I did, you know, I know, and I, uh, you know, my church is attached to the primary school. All my kids went there. I got married there. My daughter got married there. Uh, and I know some people are a bit sniffy about these families that just come along. So they want to get there. But, you know, I'm like, whatever gets you through the door. Yeah, obviously worked with you guys. Well, we'll just let God give the increase on that one. Well, you yeah. didn't really need to work for me because I was just sort of going home, really. I just needed the shove. Yeah. Uh, and um, that's been my church ever since. Amazing. Yes, he's 37 now, so that's um, a That's a long time. And, yeah. you, and you became a, a lay reader, like quite le- late in life, fairly recently. I became a reader under the bishop's license in 2009. So Amazing. That? 14 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your career now. Obviously, um, a lot of people will probably m- most recognise you recently from playing Lady Danbury in Bridgerton, yeah. which is how I imagine you look right now, even though I can't see you on my screen. I, I've got a shaved head and no makeup <laughs> on and glasses. That's what I look like in real life. In my head, you look like Lady Danbury. <laughs> okay. You stay with that one, Emily. <laughs> And, you know, just in the in the course of research in this interview, reading your list of accomplishments is truly intimidating. You're one very accomplished lady. Let's wow. talk a little bit about your career. Um, obviously, coming through the ranks as a female actor in the 70s and 80s, as a, a black female in the UK, 
what's what's been your motivation what's your driving force of everything you do because i can I, looking at your resume it doesn't look like you take the easy safe options when it comes to career well i have to i, I mean i started in the mid 80s um but i would say it's not even talking about taking options is sort of a luxury that freelancers don't get you just take the work um if you get to make a choice about the work you take you're having a lucky day um so i i was fortunate that my first experience of theater was working with a black american woman director who'd written and directed a show and we were five black um actresses in the show so that was my very first professional experience and then i went to a socialist feminist theater company called theater center whose uh work was committed to uh schools and young people touring so uh you know anything it could be for anything from four to 24 and i was offered a job with them and found out i was pregnant in the same week and uh so obviously i had to say i really want the job but i'm pregnant and there was a slight pause and then they said well we'll have to institute a maternity policy then won't we and so i toured it was brilliant um i was 22 when i joined them and i toured until uh, a couple of weeks before Jessie was born. Uh, and then when she was a week old, we went into rehearsals. Um, and she was the theatre baby. And she came on tour with me for various companies that I worked with. And I learned, you know, I, I had energy and I was young and um, not many of my friends or peers had children. So I had terrific support systems. But I learned very early on to juggle the responsibilities of uh, motherhood and working motherhood and I've sort of worked solidly through another couple of kids uh, with my husband's support and amazing childcare teams ever since so I, I I suppose what I've always done as an actor is I've said yes first and then I've worked out the logistics after. You also have a very very keen interest in sort of social justice and social action, and and you're involved with fair trade and organisations like yeah. that. Yeah. Is that sort of something for you that is is it an outworking of your faith, or is it just something that's sort of symbiotic with it? Where does your faith fit into the decisions you make about you know the projects you take creatively and the things you get involved with, sort of on an activism level as well? Well, I feel like I have the opportunity to work in the gift that I've been blessed with and anything that comes through that gift is not mine it's just coming through it'll be mine as long as I'm here and then it'll be gone but actually it comes from God so for me I have to pass the blessing on and whether it's it being in a public position to advocate for things like fair trade or for tree aid or for water aid or the International Red Cross or whatever it is, or, you know, refugee action or all those things, then I do it because the way my faith and the human being that I am created uh, has made me, it takes me in a feminist direction. It takes me in a socialist direction. It takes me really in a direction where I say, you know, we are all blessed with souls. No, No one soul is any more valuable than another. God doesn't see it that way. Who am I to see it that way? And, you know, all these earthly trappings that we have, be it our race or our income bracket or our gender or our sexuality or our differently abled bodies, whatever it is, they are just the housings of the soul. And the soul is its own, you know, it's its own creation. Uh, And so for me, I... And I, you know, I have to work on it all the time because I live in the world like everybody else and we're all prey to worldly judgments. But I try really hard to be a person that gets to know a person before they make any judgments about them. Because we're all an accident of the birth situation that we've been born into. You know, we haven't created it. And so to take the value of it or the detriment of it is madness. Um, so I, I wait to see who the person is and how we resonate. Um, and that's how I wish to be valued and judged. And I think because, you know, because of my experience and you will, you know, whether people will publicly admit it or not, the sense of judgment that you can get if you stand out from the crowd because of what you look like means that you are constantly and always 
second guessing yourself. Did I get that job because of, or didn't I get that job? Does that person, are they sitting with me because of, or are they not sitting, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, it has real world consequences because that's my lived experience. I do not want to regurgitate that experience onto anyone else. You know, that's a, that's a horror for my faith. It's a horror for my lived experience, you know, and I just think kindness and decency and thoughtfulness are ways that make us feel good about ourselves and can be good in the world as well. And uh, it doesn't seem to me an effortful uh, thing to lean in that direction. Sometimes it's a countercultural thing. You know, if it le- if it bleeds, it leads. That's the that's the news agenda and i think we live in a world of 24 hour news now so there's a lot of what i call misery porn around where people lean into into that stuff and forget that actually most people are kind and decent and thoughtful and everybody longs to be loved and to be seen and to be heard everybody so and that uh, really plays into the themes of your new play doesn't it um, you're currently doing Richard III which is a, pr- a production that you're starring in and directed and um, I was I was watching some clips of that the other night and you were talking about that um, the theme of of that of the way that Richard III was perhaps judged through history and through Shakespeare's portrayal of him because of his physical disablement um, and and that is a really interesting theme. And I think one for us as Christians to really get hold of, like how do we make sure that we are valuing everybody equally and not passing judgment before we know yeah. people and, and what they're yeah. up to? I think I think it's really important. You know, that thing, uh, that church thing that can happen where you go to church and uh, how we, oh, I'm fine. You know, I, for me, church is the place where we come in all our difference and in all our difficulties. And it's the place where you can be a hot mess. You don't have to be fine. You know, it's it's you and God. And um, I feel like, you know, as a community, we need to open those spaces so that people always feel welcome. Uh, my v- vicar who sprung the uh, vocation leaflet at me, Cameron Barker. So, you know, I did my early reader training on the on the ground with with Cameron um, and he would always say, Always think about that person that's walked through the door for the first time into this building, who may have been taken years to get the courage up to walk through the door, who may think they're not worthy of walking through the door. Whatever it is, may have had a terrible relationship with um, Christianity in the past for whatever reason, whatever it is. You have to imagine that you have to create a space where that person can walk through the door and not run straight back out. You know, and whether that means that when you're leading the service, you know, churches do things in different ways. Maybe you've got a you've got a hymnal and you've got a separate service sheet and there's another prayer sheet. And goodness knows what that you walk people through. So nobody stands there going, what what are we looking at? I don't know. Everything you, you just lay it all out really simply. And I think that sense of communication and making a space free for God to do God's work allow people to encounter that moment with God is what the gig is. However you do it, that's what the gig has to be. There's When I was training, uh, there was a wonderful woman called um, Canon Ann Stevens. She was our head of training and she introduced me to Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead. Do you know that novel? Yes, I do. You know whether, um, and weirdly it turns out that my stepbrother's wife is her cousin. Um, but anyway, the, that, the moment where the preacher on the Sunday morning prays every Sunday, you know, dear God, get me out of the way of what you want to do today. And I really feel like that, um, you know, that our job is to make the space available so people can be in conversation, in relation, in the peace, the solitude, the comfort, whatever they need with God. And it doesn't have to just be in a church building. It might be, you know, that I'm doing a job and I, you know, I don't go around going, hello, I'm a Christian. How are you? But um, it, it, it will come up at some point in conversation and you'd be amazed the people that will sidle up to you and uh, go, yeah, so um, this God thing. Or, you know, if a couple of us are praying before a show, suddenly you'll find more and more people are joining. You can make yourself available for the conversation that might lead to future further conversations or encounters. And it can be at church or it can be outside the church. You've been listening to The Profile. 
in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Profile Podcast. It's been wonderful to have you with us and I really hope you benefited from and enjoyed those two conversations we've been hosting here on the show. If you have enjoyed it, we would so appreciate it if you could give us a quick rating and a review wherever you are currently listening to this podcast. We suggest a 5 out of 5, but we leave it to your judgment. Uh, Give us a rating and a review right now. It helps other people to discover the show and if you haven't already do click that follow button just tap follow at the top of your screen and what that will mean is you're notified on all the future episodes that we are bringing you from the team here at premier christianity magazine so a rating and review and press that follow button now we really appreciate it have a great rest of your day